0: Right now, my listeners can give armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. I have a new go-to pair of headphones I have to tell you about. I've been using the Trey headphones from Studio. that's S-U-D-I-O. These headphones are comfortable and cool, and they have a unique look that embodies the vision of Scandinavian design. Another thing I love is that these headphones don't get tangled up like most others. They're made with a tangle-free cord. With most headphones, you get style or tech, never both. Studio bridges that gap and offers high-tech headphones that offer crisp, quality sound, and they're stylish and modern at the same time. If you're looking for a pair of headphones that don't skimp on quality or design, you've got to check out Studio. Plus, they offer free shipping worldwide. Studio is offering Murderish listeners a special offer of 15% off any purchase. So, do what all the cool kids are doing and head on over to Studio.com, that's S-U-D-I-O dot com, and enter the code Murderish at checkout. You'll get 15% off your purchase.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Akshay from Blood on the Rocks podcast. You're about to listen to Murderish, a podcast that features stories of murder, disappearances, and other creepy events. Listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murderish.
0: This episode of Murderish contains details of a murder that some might find to be especially disturbing. Although every murder is disturbing, I felt compelled to warn you that this episode may not be suitable for everyone due to especially heinous details surrounding this murder. Listener discretion is advised. On Sunday, April seventh, two 2002, a man was hiking through Little Sand Canyon in the San Bernardino Mountains in Southern California. He approached an area where there was an abandoned, 50-foot-deep well. He stopped to flick his cigarette into the well, which was filled with water due to recent heavy rain. As he flicked his cigarette into the deep well, he noticed something. It was the partially clothed body of a girl who was floating near the top of the water-filled well. She may not have been discovered had the well not been filled with so much water. It was discovered later that this was the body of a local 16 year old girl who had been missing for five days. The girl's name was Christy McKendall. Christy lived in the Victoria Village Apartments in Highland, about two to three miles away from where her body was discovered. Christy McKendall, born December 29, 1985, was a pretty, blonde haired girl who was popular in school. She was 16 years old and attended San Gorgonio High School or San G for short, in San Bernardino, California. According to people who knew her, Christy was an outgoing girl who smiled a lot and had many friends. She seemed to get along with just about everyone. Christy mostly hung out with the stoners and skaters at school.
1: I wasn't super close with her. I just remember because we walked the same route home from school. She lived above me, and I seen her around campus. She was like super Pretty. She was Mm -hmm. always smiling. Like she was like a very outgoing. Now she hung out with like the stoners, like the skaters. We all used to like walk over to the park and hang out. And I would be walking home and she would be, you know, walking home as well.
0: I was able to gather information regarding this case via online sources and court documents. One of the online sources is a lengthy Google Groups article written by Chris T. Wynn. I've not been able to fact-check everything written by this source. However, the article was very detailed and much of the information provided was corroborated by other publications and court documents to some degree. I will be including some of the information from Mr. Wynn's article in this story. As with anyone, Christie's life was not perfect. She had some trouble at home. Christie's parents, Paul and Connie McKendall, divorced in 1988 when Christy was only three years old. Her parents shared joint custody of Christy. Christy lived with her father in Arizona until she was 15 years old, and then she moved in with her mother in Highland, California. In her teenage years, while living with her father in Arizona, Christie's grades began deteriorating. She attended Deer Valley High School in Glendale, Arizona. According to Christie's dad, she was doing drugs and hanging out with, quote, scumbags. When her father stopped giving her an allowance out of fear she was buying drugs, Christy told her father, quote, Dad, I know I've been messing up and smoking dope. She then made a promise to her father that she would change. Although he knew she was doing drugs, Paul McKendall still maintained that his daughter was a good girl. Christie's life with her mother in California was simple. Connie McKendall was a single mom with three children from two marriages. She worked as a cashier at a local Walmart. According to the apartment complex manager, Connie often struggled to pay the rent. Christie's issues at home went far deeper than just financial troubles. Friends of Christie's reported that she slept with a butcher knife under her pillow at one point because her older stepbrother, Richie, had threatened to kill her during an argument. In addition, Christie's friends say that her twin brother, Capron, punched Christie in the face, leaving a bruise. He spent time in juvenile hall for that incident. Despite the physical altercation, friends say that Christie and her twin brother, Capron, were very close and talked about attending the same college one day. Not long before her death, Christie got into a fight with a girl from school. While walking home one day, Christie and another girl began arguing. The argument escalated and turned into a physical fight, and Christy was beaten up pretty badly, according to my cousin Tara, who attended high school with Christy. Weeks
1: prior to her death, I did see her get in a fight with another girl. I don't know what it was over. Like I said, we took the same route home, and her and this girl had words, and they just, they started boxing it out, and she got beat up pretty bad. Not pretty bad, but like her nose was busted, and I just remember going, oh my gosh, and I just like, Continuously kept walking.
0: Not long after moving in with her mom, Christie's world would collide with someone who can only be described as a monster. Jonathan Stevens, 18 years old when he met Christie, was troubled to say the least. He was described as a misfit and an outsider by people who knew him. Jonathan was teased as a child because he was hyperactive and weird. He was also very smart, which also led to more teasing by kids at school. Jonathan was part of the Gifted and Talented, or GATE, program in elementary school. Michelle Stevens, Jonathan's mother, said, quote, He was always extremely intelligent, but he didn't know how to talk to you without constantly touching you. Jonathan had attention deficit disorder, or ADD, and he typically kept to himself at school. Jonathan was beat up at school on a few occasions because other kids labeled him as a weirdo. He would not fight back. Jonathan was often seen in the school office after being in a fight or waiting to get his Ritalin from the school nurse. According to a friend, Jonathan hated taking Ritalin because it made him sick and lose his appetite. He needed the drug, though, because his demeanor would change drastically when he forgot to take it. People would notice the change as Jonathan would become very hyperactive and blurt things out in class without raising his hand. People were annoyed with him when he acted this way. As Jonathan got older, he began to stand up for himself and no longer would put up with bullying. Jonathan also became interested in the Aryan movement and white supremacy, drawing swastikas in his notebook and saying the N-word on a regular occasion. Jonathan's mother was married several times, and he didn't always like the men she married. At one point, the family moved to Colorado, where Jonathan attended school in the eighth grade. His behavior got worse, and Jonathan spent time in a psychiatric hospital after assaulting his older sister, Misty, with a knife. While at the psychiatric hospital, Jonathan was prescribed drugs to treat depression. Jonathan and his family eventually moved back to California, where he was enrolled at Pacific High School in the ninth grade. At this time, Jonathan began hanging out with stoners and skaters and started listening to heavy metal music. He also started smoking pot and doing meth. His mother, Michelle, knew he was doing drugs but claims she couldn't stop him, although she tried. Michelle Stevens said she would come home from work to confront Jonathan after learning he had ditched school, but her attempts to keep her son on the right track were in vain. There was a time when Jonathan was gone for months and his mom didn't know where he was. During this time, he was basically a drifter. He would sleep on people's couches and in their backyards. At one point, Jonathan was picked up by police for wandering the streets of San Bernardino, drunk. The police contacted his mother and asked her to come and pick him up. At first, Michelle refused, saying she was sick of it all, but the police informed her she would be charged with abandonment if she didn't come and pick up her son. Michelle picked Jonathan up, but when she refused to take him to his friend's house, Jonathan got out of his mom's car. Michelle didn't fight it. She just kept driving. She had completely lost control of her son. Jonathan was transferred to Sierra High School, a continuation school in San Bernardino at the beginning of his junior year. It didn't last, though. Jonathan was kicked out of that school within the first two months. After that, he was enrolled in a program for at-risk teens, as well as a Christian boot camp. None of it lasted, though. Jonathan would eventually be kicked out of the boot camp for running away with a girl and writing bad checks. According to people who knew him, including two people who spent time in jail with him, Jonathan killed animals during his youth. A neighborhood friend of Jonathan's said he killed animals by strangling them. It was also said that Jonathan was into bestiality, having intercourse with a dog he had killed. Jonathan also was accused of sexually abusing a 12-year-old girl after getting her drunk and forcing her to perform oral sex on him. Later, the girl awoke to Jonathan having sex with her after she had been blacked out. When it was over, Jonathan told the girl not to say anything, but the girl eventually told her sister, who then told their mother. Jonathan was charged with child molestation around the same time that Christy was murdered. Jonathan met Joshua Kernut and Luke Miller about two years prior to Christie's murder. They were both younger than him, and they feared him. All three boys lived near each other, and Joshua lived in the same apartment complex as Christie. The three boys would often hang out at Joshua's apartment, the Victoria Village apartment complex in Highland. Christie's apartment was just across the way from Joshua's, and the two of them had been friends for a while. At times. Christy would spend the night at Joshua's apartment when she was having problems at home. She considered him a close friend. Christy also knew Luke, and according to some, the two of them had a crush on each other. Christy did not know Jonathan well. The two had only known each other for about two months before Christy's murder. Christy had no way of knowing that meeting Jonathan Stevens would be the worst thing that could ever happen to her. This episode is sponsored by Studio makers of my go-to pair of headphones. Studio's headphones are high-quality and modern-looking. You've got to check them out. Head on over to studio.com and enter promo code MURDERISH at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Tuesday, April 2nd of 2002 was a warm spring day. Jonathan, 18 years old, Joshua, 15 years old, and Luke, 14 years old, met at Joshua's apartment in Highland. Around 4.30 p.m., Joshua's mother, Regina, left for work. Joshua and his younger brother, Adam, were home alone. Not long after Regina left for work, Christy called to say she was coming over to Joshua's apartment. Shortly after that, Jonathan and Luke showed up as well. Luke had a bottle of tequila and some marijuana. Jonathan, Christy, Joshua, and Luke drank the tequila with orange juice. Jonathan and Joshua were whispering with one another, but nobody heard what they were saying because the death metal music was turned up really loud. Christy was completely unaware that the two boys were discussing a very dark plan that involved one of them carrying out a sick fantasy that he had been having for quite some time. Just after 6 p.m., the four older teenagers left the apartment, leaving Adam home alone. Christy told her mom she was leaving Joshua's apartment to go play video games. Mary Wadey, general manager of the apartment complex, saw Jonathan, with Christy, Joshua, and Luke, leaving the apartment complex together. Mary did not think highly of the three boys. She did, however, recall Christy saying hi to her as they left the apartment complex. Mary said Christy's smile was warm and her demeanor was cheerful as she left with the three boys. As the four teenagers were walking, other people reported seeing them together. A friend of Christie's recalled seeing the boys and Christie walking toward Little Sand Canyon, laughing and smiling as they walked together. The teens were going to Little Sand Canyon because Jonathan and Joshua told Christie and Luke that there were marijuana plants there and they wanted to show them. They were also planning to get high there. It was starting to get dark as they continued walking toward the canyon. According to my cousin Tara, the canyon was eerie and she didn't know why anyone would want to go there.
1: We always hung out at the park, but yeah, it's just crazy to think why she would go up there and and do that because it totally going back there gets eerie and you just come up to the brick wall, you walk up a little a little bit higher and it's right behind like San Manuel area. Like if you can picture those mountains all the way out on the top of Arden, you go all the way up and There's like a white picket fence. You go through there and you come up this little hill a couple miles back there. And it's just the brick wall. And at the time we went, it was a pretty empty well. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of water like way down there, but totally eerie place to be. We walked back there weeks after it happened. And all I can think about when we were walking there is this is the most eerie walk ever. I don't even know why somebody would walk back there. When you get back there, it's real open, but then you walk like maybe a mile back there and it starts getting just real like bushy and a bunch of trees and it's, and where it happened at, very eerie. Like there is a well and a brick wall.
0: The teens walked up the dirt trail leading to their ultimate destination, which would take another 20 minutes to get to. Along the dirt trail were tons of trees, a wash and numerous no trespassing signs. They reached a spot deep into the canyon that had an old concrete wall that was once part of a dam. It was about 8 p.m. and completely dark outside by this time. Jonathan and Christy began playing a game called Pass Out. Jonathan put pressure on Christy's neck, causing her to lose consciousness and fall to the ground. Christy regained consciousness and sat down on the cracked concrete wall, Jonathan came up behind her as she was rubbing the area of her neck where he had applied pressure. Christy was nervous at this point. What happened next would forever change the course of all of their lives. Jonathan came up from behind Christy and pulled her off the wall, causing the two of them to fall to the ground. Jonathan ordered Joshua and Luke to grab Christy's arms and legs. The two of them complied, with Joshua holding her legs and Luke holding her arms. Christy was helpless. The boys laughed as they tickled Christy, but their laughter was short-lived as Jonathan began choking her. Jonathan then whispered the word die into Christy's ear. She fought back and she scratched Joshua's forehead and arms, but she was no match for the boys and soon she stopped struggling. At that point, the younger boys, Joshua and Luke, let go of Christy's limbs and stepped away from her body. According to Luke, Jonathan threatened him and said, You better not leave or I'm going to kill you. Joshua then handed Jonathan a large, baseball bat-sized eucalyptus branch. Jonathan hit Christy in the head several times with the large branch, and then a few more times with an even larger branch. He then took a cigarette lighter and lit it next to Christy's face and said, Cool. Christie was dead. What Jonathan proceeded to do next completely separates him from what any average, decent human being would ever fathom doing. Jonathan had sex with Christie's dead body. According to some reports, Joshua did too. Christie's body was then dragged to a nearby abandoned well, and the three boys threw her inside. Christie trusted Joshua and Luke and considered them friends she never could have imagined they would betray her and aid in another person's cold-blooded plan to kill her and violate her body. The boys left and began walking home. When Jonathan left and headed toward his house, Luke whispered to Joshua, quote, Did that really happen, or did I imagine it? Christy was reported missing within a day or so, and missing persons posters were hung around town and at Sanji, where Christy attended high school. Five days after Christy was last seen with the three boys, on April 7th of 2002, a hiker found her lifeless body inside the abandoned well. The hiker also happened to be the grandfather of one of Christy's good friends. Christy was partially clothed and had multiple skull and facial fractures, which was determined to be the cause of her death. The police closed in on Jonathan, Joshua, and Luke within two days of discovering her body because the four had been seen together by multiple people the last day Christie was seen alive. Joshua and Luke quickly confessed to the murder and pointed to Jonathan. Police showed up at Jonathan's house on the morning of April 9th, two days after Christie's body was discovered. In a search of Jonathan's bedroom, police found the clothes and shoes he wore the day of Christie's murder. Police didn't have to press Jonathan for information. He was forthright and told them everything that happened that night. He told detectives that he had planned the whole thing at Joshua's apartment that evening and specifically lured Christy to the canyon to kill her. Going a step further with the story, Jonathan told detectives he, quote, wanted to see what it was like to have sex with a corpse. He went on to say that he was not very close to Christy and he had no feelings for her. If it had been anyone else there that day, he probably would have killed that person. After being arrested, the three boys were taken back to the crime scene where they proceeded to reenact Christie's murder for police. On April 10th, three days after Christie's body was discovered, the three boys were charged in connection with the crime. Jonathan and Joshua were charged with first degree murder and were going to be tried as adults. Luke, however, was charged for being an accessory to a murder after the fact. He was going to be tried in juvenile court. The three boys were sent to the West Valley Juvenile Hall in Rancho Cucamonga while they awaited their trials. Luke ultimately pled guilty and was convicted of being an accessory to murder after the fact. He was sentenced to three years in the California Youth Authority. On July thirty-first, two 2002, In a pre-trial hearing, the prosecution announced they would be requesting two separate juries to try Jonathan and Joshua for first-degree murder. A special circumstance charge of lying in wait and use of a weapon were brought against Jonathan not long after he was charged with first-degree murder. At one point before trial, Jonathan's defense attorney requested a change in venue citing prejudice against the defendant. The motion was denied and the case was to be tried in San Bernardino Superior Court under Judge Bob Krug. Both Jonathan and Joshua initially pled not guilty. Jonathan pled not guilty by reason of insanity. A psych evaluation was ordered and it was determined that Jonathan was not insane. Shortly after the psych evaluation came in and against the advice of his attorney, Jonathan Stevens pled guilty to the crime of first-degree murder and special allegations of lying in wait and using a weapon. His attorney advised against the guilty plea, especially because the defendant was not getting anything from the prosecution in exchange for his guilty plea. Judge Bob Krug asked Jonathan why he would plead guilty to the charges. Jonathan told the judge he wanted to avoid a trial. He said to the judge, quote, I want to spare my family, the victim's family, and myself— the pain of going to trial and bringing all this up again. Jonathan chose not to address the court before his sentence was handed down. Judge Bob Krug sentenced Jonathan to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jonathan was 20 years old at the time of his sentencing. In an interview after his sentencing, Jonathan said he still struggles with his bizarre actions the day he killed Christy. Jonathan said, quote, I've never been able to think of a reason why I did it. The thought just popped into my head to do it that day. I didn't not like her. She was cool. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Chilling words from someone who clearly places no value on human life. Joshua's trial began on October 18th of 2004, two and a half years after Christy was murdered. The first few days of the trial were mostly jury selection and both sides presenting their opening statements. Eight days after the trial began, the court advised the jury of an arising issue which would cause them to be in recess for 30 days. At this time, the court declared doubt as to Joshua's present mental competence. Criminal proceedings were suspended and medical commission was appointed. Joshua had attempted to commit suicide and needed to be evaluated before proceeding with the trial. About a month after his suicide attempt, a doctor concluded that Joshua was mentally competent and the trial resumed. A few days after the trial resumed, Joshua withdrew his not guilty plea and pled guilty per a plea bargain agreement with the prosecution. In exchange for Joshua's guilty plea, the prosecution dropped the first degree murder charge down to a second degree murder charge. On December 27th of 2004, Judge Bob Krug sentenced Joshua to 15 years to life in prison for his role in the murder of Christy McKendall. Joshua was given credit for time already served, which totaled 1,143 days. Through his attorney, Joshua made a request for stay of transport to state prison. In other words, since Joshua was a minor at the time of his sentencing, he was requesting to remain in Juvenile Hall until his 18th birthday, which was on February 8th of 2005. His request was granted and he remained in Juvenile Hall until his 18th birthday. After he turned 18, Joshua was transported to California Department of Corrections in Chino, California, a state prison for adults. At Joshua's sentencing, Judge Bob Krug reminded him that it will be at least 15 years before he will even be considered for parole. The judge told him, quote, If you have any conception of something less than that, I advise you to put it out of your mind. Christie's mother, Connie, made this statement to Joshua. What were you thinking when you murdered Christy? You are not getting the punishment you really deserve. You not only took Christie's life, but you changed others forever. I can never forgive you, but I'll try to go on for Christie's sake. Two days from now would have been Christie's birthday. Connie was looking directly at Joshua as she spoke. Joshua looked down the entire time and showed no emotion as Connie spoke to him. He also showed no emotion as the judge read his sentence. Joshua was sentenced in late 2004 and given credit for a little over three years of time served. That means he should have come up for parole in 2016. I have not been able to find any information regarding Joshua's current status. I would imagine the local media would have reported it if he was granted parole in 2016. Therefore, my assumption is that Joshua is still in prison. In June of 2009, after only serving five years in prison, Jonathan Stevens' defense attorney requested a modification of his sentence. The man who choked a girl unconscious, brutally beat her to death, and then violated her body thought for some reason he deserved a modification to his life sentence. The court denied Jonathan's request. Jonathan Stevens seemed to be a time bomb just waiting to go off, His impulses were not like any normal human beings. Unfortunately, Christy crossed paths with a monster who had been searching for a victim even before he met her. Christy walked miles into a deep and eerie canyon with three boys, two of whom she trusted. She considered them friends. She could have never known she was walking into a death trap that night. I remember hearing about Christy's murder, I was 24 years old and living in Highland at the time. News of Christie's murder spread quickly, and people were shocked after hearing the details of what happened to her that night. I cannot imagine how scared she must have been the moment she realized she was in trouble. I hope for Christie's sake that she felt no pain in her last moments. And I hope her family and friends felt some sort of comfort knowing that the monster who did this to her got a brown box sentence. Jonathan will die in prison. That's it for today's story. I want to say a huge thank you to my friend Heidi for helping me research this story. I appreciate your help so much. It's fun collaborating with like-minded, murderish people like Heidi. Also, a big thank you to my cousin Tara for the interview she gave and the insight she was able to provide. I want to say a special thank you to Patreon supporters Misty, Micah, Mike from the Dark Poutine podcast, Rebecca, Hiro, and Sky. You guys are awesome and I really appreciate your support. Please go to the Murderish Facebook group to let me know your thoughts regarding this story. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't be shy, tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on social media, on Twitter at Murderish Pod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. I have a closed group set up for us to discuss all things murderish. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash murderish. If you choose to become a patron, you'll get some extra perks in exchange. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash murderish. Murderish merchandise is also available at two online stores. Links to the online stores are available in show notes and in the About section of the Murderish Podcast Facebook group. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Murderish Podcast has partnered with True Crime Magazine, a publication brought to you by top experts in the true crime world. True Crime Magazine offers a fascinating journey through the criminal mind. In the magazine, you'll find historical photo archives and in-depth articles relating to some of the world's most notorious killers. If you're a true crime enthusiast like me, you'll want to add this magazine to your reading rotation. Exclusively for Murderish Podcast listeners, True Crime Magazine is giving away 100 two-year subscriptions for only $20. That's a $100 value for Murderish listeners. Additionally, for the next 48 hours, True Crime Magazine will include two more best-selling true crime publications with little to no additional cost. To take advantage of this offering, head on over to thecrimemag.com forward slash murderish. That's thecrimemag.com forward slash murderish. Seeking the truth never gets old.